0: Hey there, Chip Close here, host of the Restaurant Strategy Podcast. By now, you know I wrote a book. It's called The Restaurant Marketing Mindset. I want you to get yourself a copy of it. In fact, order two copies, one for you, one for your partner, one for you, one for your general manager, or one for you, one for your chef. This will help change your restaurant. And if you think the chef or the general manager doesn't need to understand about marketing, that's exactly why you need to get them reading this book. You'll see that there's a relationship between marketing and operations that will be become obvious when you read this book. You can get it from uh, Amazon.com. You can get it from BarnesandNoble.com. You can also get it directly from me. Go to TheRestaurantMarketingMindset.com. Every cent generated from that website goes directly to me. It just helps me uh, generate money so that I can uh, release the next one. TheRestaurantMarketingMindset.com. Go order your copy or two or three. I really appreciate your support. I promise you, you're going to get a ton out of this book. And make sure to come back. We're sitting down with Ken McGarry. This is is an encore presentation of an interview we did way way back on episode number 122. Uh, I've got Ken coming back on the show in early uh, 2024 so I thought it was a uh, ripe uh, perfect time for you to uh, for me to reintroduce you to Ken I love this guy he is smart he is sharp he wrote a book called The Surprise Restaurant Manager which you'll hear we talk about on this interview uh, so much uh, so much worth listening to on this interview Don't go anywhere there's an old saying that goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast with answers for anyone who's looking. My name is Chip Close, and this is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast dedicated solely to helping you build a more profitable restaurant. Each week, I leverage my 20-plus years in the industry to help you build that more profitable and more sustainable business. I also work directly with owners and operators all over the world through my P3 Mastermind program. Currently, we've got more than 100 people enrolled in the program spread across three different mastermind groups. The program works. If you've got a successful restaurant doing over a million dollars a year, you've been open at least a year, but you're struggling to generate consistent, predictable 20% profits, then please get in touch. Set up a free strategy session with me or someone from my team. Visit restaurantstrategypodcast.com schedule. We'll learn more about you and your restaurant. You'll learn more about the program. Ask questions about the program. Let's see if you're a good fit for the program. If we both feel like you're a good fit, we'll talk about the next steps and we'll go from there. Again, best way to get started is to visit restaurant slash schedule. And yes, you'll find that link in the show notes. Now, We all know managing costs is one of the most important parts of running a profitable restaurant, especially now. But between fluctuating vendor prices, waste, labor, and the never-ending list of tasks that demand your attention on a daily basis, it can be challenging for even the most experienced of us to manage costs well. That's where Margin Edge comes in. Margin Edge is a complete restaurant management software that automatically uses data from your POS and invoices to show you your food and labor costs in real time. Don't wait until it's too late. Margin Edge gives you tools to make decisions in the moment, like a daily P&L, price alerts on key ingredients, and real-time plate costs, all without ever having to touch a spreadsheet. Take control of your costs, work more efficiently, and be more profitable. Learn more at marginedge.com slash chip, and yes, you'll find that link in the show notes. So, my guest on today's show is a guy named Ken McGarry. He is the co-founder of a company called Corgan Hospitality. Uh, It's a consulting firm for restaurants based out of uh, the Chicago area. Uh, He's also the author of a brand new book called The Surprise Restaurant Manager. Ken, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Chip. I really do appreciate
0: it. No, I've been looking forward to this conversation. I just ordered my book. Uh, I know you can get it for a buck, uh, the Kindle version, uh, but I ponied up and I got the, the, the actual... Um, paperback version, so it's on its way. I haven't even read it yet, but I'm really excited to dive in, and I'm excited to have this conversation first so you can kind of get me excited to dive into the uh, the full book.
1: Well, I appreciate you mentioning the 99 cents. That's big, and I'm going to ruin it all for you because we're going to talk about it today. So by the end of it, you'll be like, I, I think we talked about a lot of those things. but
0: That's great. Th- listen, let's let's get to as much as we can. I so love it. um So I, I guess to get started, that's, a, I guess, as good a place as any. Talk to me a little bit about... Uh, about the book, uh, what it's about, what inspired you to write it. Um, That's, that's probably a good place to start.
1: So the book has been going in some form or fashion since 2006, because I had a barbecue restaurant in Toronto and uh, due to visa statuses, uh, it meant that I had to leave the country for a little bit. And in doing so um, I put someone in charge and I started writing out absolutely everything that I could possibly think of that he might need to be able to do in my absence. And then as it developed i started pulling little blogs and articles out of it and just started posting those on our website and soon found i found ourselves with a little bit of time to sit down and kind of compose my thoughts and put them together most importantly it's a lot of the same conversations that i seem to have over and over when i go into restaurants the same sort of oh you you had to terminate somebody well Why didn't you have a witness or, oh, you hired that person, but they were late for 10 minutes. Why did you hire them? They, you know, those sort of conversations. So I just kind of wrote it all down and, that's how the book
0: began. Yeah, listen, I love it. I mean, the interesting thing about this is that I think uh, there are a lot of people in hospitality. Um, certainly when I was coming up into it, um, it was more this way. Now it seems to be, you can really make a career, right? Like you can you can go to school for it. You can pursue it. But uh, I don't know, 20 years ago when I found myself moving to New York City, uh, it, that's not... Um, that's not the way it was for for a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people, myself included, kind of took the side door in or the back door in. It was a it was a way to pay the bills, right? It was a day job while you're uh, following other pursuits. And tell me if I'm wrong. You you actually uh, got into it through a similar s- similar fashion.
1: Well, I mean, besides the fact of the dishwasher at Chuck E. Cheese, where I had to wear the mouse outfit as half my job. Uh, yeah, I. Pretty traditionally, the same way I, that we all went in. I didn't go to hospitality school. I went to school for English, and, but I always bartended or served, and that was that's what I did to get me by and to you know get through school. And I just found myself enjoying that more than I did like sitting at a desk or writing.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's so interesting the the number of people, and I found. I found I've interviewed, um, you know, a fair amount of people on this show, uh, operators who, uh, restaurants became their second act. Like they went all in um, at the age of like 45 or 50 or 60. And it's like, like, it's so hard. I mean, you know, besides just, you know, the challenges it presents, you know, inherently, it's just it's long hours. It's it's dealing with people all the time, both your employees and your purveyors and your guests. It's it's like it's a hard line of work. So it, it always uh, amazes me when people uh, <laughs> make a deliberate decision to, to take uh, such a hard road um at that point in their in their lives and their careers but uh, again I, I was like you I, I took the side door and it was a day job while i was uh, following other pursuits um and as i always joke around is that i had two parallel careers one in the arts and one in hospitality um and then at a certain point um they, they merged for me and um so much of what I loved about one I found in the other and so much of, you know, what I wasn't finding in the other one I was finding. And so it was a really interesting marriage for me. But the interesting thing about that, and and I'll use this to launch into, you know, the main pitch of the book is that uh, a lot of people just kind of fall into it or step into it. They don't get that formal training. It's just like like the person who hangs around long enough just gets the keys to the to the kingdom, so to speak. So, and like you said, right? Like you're having the same conversations over and over and over. So talk about your own journey as you were coming up through that. Like, like what did you have to learn the hard way and 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 what were some of the struggles there that kind of led to you figuring this out and then wanting to pass this along to others?
1: So I think that if I had to rename the book, it'd be called All the Things I Screwed Up <laughs> because that, that is literally, I've done everything wrong all the way through the book. but the reason it's called the surprise manager is it's exactly that reason you're a good server you're a good bartender someone hands you the keys and says hey do you mind opening up and throwing out drawers and doing the count out and the next thing you know now you're staffing and you're scheduling and then you're coaching and none of you don't get training and the the reality is is that there just really isn't for servers and bartenders and other positions a lot of restaurant groups do a great job of having dedicated training for, for managers. A lot of them really don't. And at best they sit them in the kitchen for a while and have them prep broccoli or go over the pasta station and mess around and they go through all the stations but they don't really learn the fundamentals of how to manage people and to
0: go from there. And so here, here's the other interesting thing, and, and I'll just jump in, I'll interject real quickly, sure. is that the same issues that befall managers, right? Again, you're, you're a really great server and you become an assistant manager or the service director or whatever it is. Um, I find that a lot of those same things, tell me if uh, if you agree or disagree, a lot of those same issues also um, hamper uh, operators, chefs, operators, because they're good at what they do, um, but just because you, you know how to cook great food you know how to put together a beautiful menu doesn't mean that you necessarily have all the other skills even if you're good at you know maintaining your cost and things like, and scheduling and all of that you're not necessarily good with people or you might be good with people and and really good at cultivating a team uh, but you aren't necessarily good in some of the the administrative pieces which are really really important especially in an industry that operates with razor thin profit margins razor
1: thin and you're exactly right it's that so much that what you're added you could be a fantastic bartender but as a manager you could be an absolute failure and my first management job quite honestly was a place that i was working as a bartender and i just came in and made myself a bloody mary every day and just had that every morning and put together my bar and was <laughs> happy as hell as my college bar and it was great and then they're like hey you know you seem somewhat competent. you show up most days on time here's the keys and then i realized very quickly that that's not good. And then I also tried to manage people because I had a title. And that's such a big thing that freshman managers do is you get a title. And now you're like, well, you need to do this because I said so. And, <laughs> and everyone goes, shut up. A week ago, you were just drinking Bloody Marys. You had no, no title. We're not listening to you. So half of that, you, you might be good at what you do, but you might not even be able to understand how to motivate people beyond trying to use your title, which never worked.
0: Yeah. So one of the reasons why I really wanted to have this conversation, number one, the the book just came out. You're, you know, you're really putting it out there in a way. It looks like on Amazon, it just uh, tipped over the top 50 for restaurants and hospitality. So that's, that's no small thing.
1: That is insane. That is good. But I'll tell you that they update those hourly, so it changes. It's kind of like crypto, that if you get into it and you just keep on looking at it on your phone, <laughs> I've gotten obsessive with looking at Amazon to see where my ranking is. And my wife is like, what are you looking at? Is, is it your book or is it crypto? Both of them used <laughs> to stop staring at it.
0: <laughs> well so listen like, it's a big okay. deal and you know uh, just you know just getting this out there and you know reaching that kind of attention i think is uh, is really good the other piece though that that made me really excited to have this conversation uh is as we're having this conversation we're, we're crawling out of the pandemic uh here in the united states at least and staffing is the thing that everyone's talking about staffing is on everybody's mind um, I've got opinions about it uh certainly I think we'll get to that I'm sure you have opinions about it um but it seems like a really um uh you know an inconvenient intersection here with with what you're talking about what you're writing about and what you do I'm sure in your uh in your you know private consulting uh business um and and what's happening right now in the world so uh, put it in perspective if you can let's talk a little bit about what's going on so one of my major clients
1: nationwide is celebrity chef Fabio Viviani you probably know him from Top Chef and he was kind enough to write the forward of my book and I have a hand in about 30 locations AS nationwide, and every single location is saying we can't find people. It's such a challenge. And so we've had to kind of reassess why and what's, what are the ways of making that happen. And especially for news store openings, which is what the majority of what I do with them is, uh, people are walking into a place and thinking, wow, there's two weeks of training, There's a lot of stuff to do. This seems really challenging. I'm just going to go down the street. So how do you keep people engaged and how do you keep people who have a new restaurant opening to stay after you spend all that time in training? And so far we found beyond the fact that we spend a lot of time in empowerment with giving our servers and bartenders, the ability to own their experience, uh, comp, take care of people really, really be a part of the conversation instead of having managers just be comp and void machines. We've also kind of put in a situation to where uh, we're giving, in some cases, uh, minimums. So on a given shift, you might make 60 bucks, which sucks. But if we just opened up a place, we're going to say, all right, we're going to meet you to where you're going to guarantee to at least make 120 on these days, because it's a guaranteed minimum. And because and especially in an opening, people have to be willing to go into a place that they've never seen before. It's, it's almost like selling a, a timeshare in a strip mall. It's like, yeah, it's going to be down the street. It's going to be amazing. But you're making promises and people have to be willing to go into that. That's been a challenge in and of itself, but it was in 2019 as well. It's always finding the risk takers that are willing to be in new store openings has always been challenging. I think it has a lot more to do with restaurateurs being willing to look inside and understand how they can change their communication and their philosophy in order to attract top talent. Because I do know restaurant groups that because of who they were during the pandemic and how they've changed their communication with their staff to an appreciation are having a far less challenge being able to find people because people are 100% Feeling like that they're a part of something greater.
0: So that's uh, that was exactly where I was going to go with this. So so talk to me about so so who's doing that? Like 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 what are they doing specifically? Like how did they change their outlook during the pandemic? And and specifically how are they carrying that forward into this this post pandemic world?
1: So there's a restaurant group here in Chicago called the Fifty Fifty Group. They are an amazing group of people, and what they've done. During the minute that all of this happened, they converted their kitchens. And it went from being able to try, to try to create an environment to where they're taking care of their staff. They moved it beyond that. And a lot of restaurants did that. A lot of restaurants went to their inventory and were like, you know what, this is all going to spoil. We're going to get all this together. We're going to pack it up. We're going to give everybody. We're going to try to feed our team as much as possible. Well, this group got in with, I think, U.S. Foods or Cisco, and then started continuing to bring food in for their teams, but then realized that they could feed their community as well. And so every night, open up the windows, several hours, passing out hundreds of meals to people everywhere, industry, other competing places, just people in the neighborhood, anybody who needed food with the positivity of, you know, we're gonna be here for you and we really appreciate that. Um, and they did that for all of their locations through the entirety of the pandemic. Then when things started to reopen, they were really ahead of the curve on not only the communication that kept their staff safe, but when they had the opportunity, um, even converting some of their areas for places to get the COVID vaccine. So and, and and not even for just their staff, but then again, the community. So they were seen as people who were trying to make a difference as they were growing. So then people remembered that people said, oh. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to go to there. And the way that that staff was treated, they came back respectfully. So it is not, I mean, the numbers that sales are best are better. Um, the staff is great. And everyone who's there is bought in. Yeah. And you see that a lot. I mean, there, there are places that have done that and done that very successfully.
0: Yeah. And so, so I guess this goes back to another question, right? Which is, so as we look at the staffing issue for me, so much, I mean, there a lot of people want to levy, you know, one reason, right? They want to blame it on one thing, one, one thing or another. And I think it's a um, a compound issue. and 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 tell me where you stand on this. But you know, for me, it's uh, it's a really difficult. like We were kind of joking about this a minute ago. You know, it's a difficult industry to work in long hours, uh, sometimes low pay, sometimes great pay, but sometimes low pay. Um, it, it's hard, arduous work. Um, you got a lot of doubles, you got a lot of triples, you got a lot of closings, right? Closing into opening. Um, you got uh, not necessarily, uh, you don't necessarily have access to healthcare or a 401k, let alone a match, let alone, you know, a good, you know, PTO um, program. And so there are plenty of reasons uh, why somebody wouldn't want to work in restaurants, and I think we just haven't done a good enough job of kind of meeting people where where I think they need to be, or where where I think they should be. You know, especially now coming off the pandemic, everybody got laid off from their uh, restaurants, or let's say a, a very you know very strong majority got laid off, and Absolutely. they sat around and they looked around. And they said, "Well, I, I need a job." And I think a lot of people figured out that. Their skill set was applicable elsewhere. There, there were other things they were qualified to do, right? There's there's nothing that we do in the restaurants, you know, aside from some some real craft, right? Like knife skills and, and things like that, and you know, as a sommelier, having this this wealth of knowledge that is literally uh, does you no good anywhere else except within the four walls of a restaurant. Um, a lot of people are like, oh, they're, wine people are quick learners. They're, um, you know, they're uh, they're they're a wealth of knowledge. They're personable. They're charismatic. They're good salespeople. Like those skills do transfer to other to other industries to other pursuits. So yeah, if you were if you were dead set on a career in uh, restaurants, then of course yeah, you were gonna hang around and wait for it to come back open. Uh, But if you didn't necessarily need that, if you just needed a job, um, I think a lot of people over the course of the pandemic and statistically, right, if it was 10 percent or 20 percent or 30 percent of our employees uh, found another avenue uh, that P.S. probably has benefits and 401k and a good paid time off and maternity, paternity, all of that. Right. So part of me, part of my frustration with this post pandemic staffing crunch, it's like, listen. The jobs sucked beforehand and they still suck now. You did nothing in the 15 months in between to fix the things that sucked. And so and how and how quickly we forget, like you said, you know, the second half of 2019, those first two months of 2020, it was impossible to find staff. We couldn't keep cooks more than two, uh, two shifts at at some of the places where I was uh, consulting with. And so none of that has changed. It's now just been exacerbated by the fact that people have gone and found other um, other avenues or are still nervous about being out in public or, or whatever that is. So how do we move forward there as an industry or just in our own restaurants to, to fix that, even just fix that at home?
1: You're, I think you hit so many of the correct uh, responses. It is, it is arduous. And I think that we have no one to blame, but ourselves as the restaurant industry for not creating an environment to where people are excited about coming back to work there. It's, it's like the logic when somebody says, well, you know what? I started as a dishwasher, and I even said it earlier today. And <laughs> dishwashers are the, the person that is the least paid. And I always think to myself, that doesn't make any sense because if you're paying it based on what, you know, hot, uh, challenging, work, long, thankless, they should probably make damn near most of what anybody makes. But we don't do that as a as an industry. We don't value the... I, you know, from, from what people are bringing, what people are paying, uh, it's just has really not been able to be intuitive for a lot of people to change the model. And the thing that I still see the most, which is where we talk about changing the conversation, is people are still in this space of saying, look at us. We're great. I'll go back to the 5050 group for a second after they did all these amazing things and they really did. Um, And my wife works for them, so I will admit I'm a little biased on that, but I will tell you that one of the things that their communication was, hi, we need your help, come work for us, we would really love to have you, instead of look at all these great awards we have, look at how fantastic we are, aren't you lucky, because I and I'm sure you came from a time like this. I remember working for owners who would come out with stacks of resumes and be like, "You know what? Anybody could take your job. I've got a huge <laughs> stack. I've got all these, and it's crap. And it's just always it was crap then, and it's crap now. There's not a huge line of people. They're just there never truly was, and because the truly great people can work anywhere, and it's a conscious choice that they make every single morning. I mentioned my wife. My wife makes a conscious choice every morning to be married to me. She can wake up. <laughs> she can wake up tomorrow and go. You know what? No, because she's great, and she she could get a guy anywhere legitimately, and that means that she has options. But she chooses, and so I view that with massive appreciation, like I hit the lottery every day. And that's in my communication with her is appreciate true, genuine, real appreciation. That's exactly how it has to be with your staff because they do have the opportunity to work anywhere. And if you don't, if, if you get to the point to where you're micromanaging or you're drilling people or you're thinking it's okay to bring tension onto the floor, or you're treating adults like kids by saying things like now, did you bring all your pens and you're making sure to smile? Ah! You're not a good <laughs> manager. You're completely ineffectual and you're infantile people that don't deserve it every and that's that that mindset when i set this whole thing out to start writing it that was the mindset we have to kind of change the conversation to where when you're communicating with people you just realize that titles have more to do with people's responsibilities than it does with having to delegate and tell everyone what to do all the time
0: you know it's so funny i'm, I'm always reminded of that zig ziglar quote and uh and, and i i I I don't know. I share it every chance I get. But he had this very famous quote that he said, you can help any uh, you get any anything in life you want, as long as you help enough other people get what they want in life. And it's like it's true as an employer. It's true as a business, as a merchant. Right. Like like if you give somebody something of value that they need, that a lot of people need, they will come to you and get it. And that will and that will buy you your house. That will buy you retirement. That will that will give you every whatever you want. You fill in the blank. Um, and I and I wish we thought about that more as employers, as as somebody you know, as, as groups, as organizations who employ people to to turn it around and think like, well, what do people want? Like, what do people want out of a job? I think they want some balance. I think they want as much money as they can get. I think uh-huh. they want you know like fill in the blanks. It's we don't have to go very far. To say, well, we pretty much, you know, gun, gun to my head, I could write down the twenty things that I think people want out of a job and how to create a really good job, and then you got to figure out what of those ten you can live with, and what are the ten that are just break your back as an employer, and and create a place then um, that that's pretty special. So, how do we do that? What what's the so what's your advice okay. then? Coming out of this, like, how do you begin to change? Because we're talking about changing the culture, right? Like, sure, like, changing I, the
1: communication, absolutely.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, how do you, how do you do that, or how do you begin to do that?
1: Okay, I'll give you. A, I'll give an example, and this is a broad gener, generalization, and it's definitely anecdotal, but it has been my take that every restaurant I go out to and every bar that I frequent, it's like people came out of the pandemic and just forgot how to how to act. And they just were like, they're, they're just raging and people are just anxious and they haven't been out. And now they're out and oh my God. And they feel like they have to pack everything from the last year into it. And they're also not being understanding of the fact that we're trying to do almost twice as much in sales with half the staff. So things aren't going to go in the same way. So it's, it's this huge aspect of, oh my God, with guests who are not receiving what they think that they deserve, whether they deserve it or not. The option for an owner or a true great restaurant manager to always support your staff and not be that person who believes that the customer, the term I never use except for this example, is always right because they're not. And sometimes they're completely insane. And if you build an environment to where you're catering to that instead of supporting your team, then all you're doing is once again, you're putting your value in the wrong aspect. It's changing every aspect to where, you, I mean, one of the first things I ever say to my team is, hi, you're an adult. I'm going to treat you as such. And yeah, yeah, if I have to talk to you about the number of pens that you're bringing in a day, then we have a problem or whether or not to show up. We all, we all have an understanding, right? Great. So I'm not going to be the person who's going to be hounding. You. I'm going to be the person who's supporting you. And I, when I'm at your tables, I'm going to be helping you to pre-bus instead of telling you how to go do your job because I, I know less about being a server than every server that I'm associated with. And I know – so much less about being a bartender and i don't even begin to get into the back of the house like every once in a while someone will screw up call me chef and i just look at him and go i'll never deserve that title i i cannot do that there's just a, you have to i mean my quote is the henry ford model which is simply that you surround yourself with your weaknesses and you allow them to you basically you just get out of their way and that to me is the only sort of value and making a creative place to where people can make money they feel supported but they don't feel like that they're being you know because that's what a manager is they're they're literally supposed to be there to help out the team they're not supposed to be there to just point and unfortunately that that seems to be the tendency of the norm
0: So I've got some very exciting news to share. This January, 2024, January 14th to the 16th, I am hosting my first live in-person event. We're doing these now twice a year. January will be the P3 Marketing Summit. Then in July, we're going to host the P3 Leadership Summit. Tickets are now on sale for the P3 Marketing Summit again, January 2024. Right now, Premier Access Early Bird Tickets. If you're listening to this in October, before the end of October, if you get your tickets, they are $297 apiece, Three less than $300 apiece. You can come be a part of this three-day event. You got a welcome party, two full days of workshops, five different workshops in all, plus a big party on the second night. <laughs> Listen, open bar, food, tons of insights over the course of these Uh, two days of workshops. I'm co-hosting the event with a friend and colleague of mine named Rev Ciancio. If you don't know Rev, go look him up. Find him on Instagram. Find him on Facebook. Find him on TikTok. Do a quick Google search. You will see this guy is serious. He is hands down the best restaurant marketer I know. I am overwhelmed uh, to be able to partner with him on this. Uh, We're being uh, promoted and sponsored by Marquis Milagro and Ovation. You're going to hear from founders and some of their people to talk about how they view the world of marketing. And again, five different workshops over three days. You're going to love this event. You can get your tickets by clicking the link in the show notes. Go get your tickets. Limited uh, availability. We're capping the group. Uh, We're capping the attendance at 100. If you go uh, now, you'll see that there are less than uh, 50 tickets left. If you want to be one of those 100 people in the room, you got to get your tickets now. Again, prices go up uh, in November So if you want to uh, lock in the Premier Access Early Bird pricing, go now. They're less than $300 a ticket. You will not regret it. Look forward to seeing many of you there. Again, that link is in the show notes. So then how does a restaurant, so then what is the right way to frame this idea of being a restaurant manager, right? Because, you know, by the title of your book, The Surprise Restaurant Manager. So then how do you begin to train somebody and give them the tools they need to succeed to then support the rest of the team so that they can succeed, so that ultimately the restaurant can uh, can succeed. How do you begin that conversation?
1: So being a restaurant manager in and of itself is a stopgap, has to be. It's boot camp, has to be. You're doing it because you're going on something greater. If you're a server and you want to go be a manager and that's all you ever want to be, then why? Because you're now working twice as many hours for half as much pay. Why? Why are you doing that? It has to move to something greater you have to figure out why you're doing what you do it's actually literally chapter one these are the six reasons people usually get into this why are you doing it uh, and what you're trying to ultimately achieve then from a restaurant management standpoint you have to balance the support of the team the taking care of the guest and understanding how to channel the negativity and the balance that comes from either guest issues or ownership expectations, strong personalities that want you to act in certain manners. it All of it is just a balancing act. And those are the things that we really never focus on when trying to develop managers. Because if you don't have a succession plan as an owner for a restaurant manager and say, okay, so right here, you accomplished these things in six months, we're going to move you to What's an AGM role? And then that's going to take about 18 months before it gets you to a GM. But you're going to have to hit these eight measurables. And this is what we're going to do. If you don't have somebody who's doing that in your life to try to get you to the next level, then you have to do that yourself. You have to continue to self-promote and dig into the people who have power to elevate you. Because otherwise, they'll leave you in that boot camp as long as possible because you are doing the job that nobody else is is willing to do? You're you're going to stay in the boot camp.
0: Yeah. So then, in the first six months, let's say uh, there's a, a manager or there's a server listening to this, or there's somebody who's new in, in into this or, or going to be new, mm-hmm. and they don't have the kind of owner who's going to give you those marks like a like you'd find in a corporate structure. You know, you got to do X, Y, and Z, and then we move to this. And that, that, there's, that there's a path forward. Let's say that this person doesn't have that. What what would you think are the first skills? that need to be, uh, acquired in that first six months, right? What, what are the things that you think they should come out with to succeed, to be, to be able to do their job better in those first, in those first few months?
1: The thing I often encounter are managers who are stuck in their position and they say, I don't know how to get to the next level. And it's because nobody really knows what they do because they're in an unmanaged role. And the reality is, is that if you're really good at what you're doing, then your owners, senior managers, aren't really gonna pay attention to you positively or negatively. They just know, oh, Carl's got it. He's doing a good job. Just just let him go. And that that's a terrible model for growth. So you have to begin to kind of promote the aspects of what you're doing. And I'm not saying write out a list today, I opened up the keys and I put this and I did, but talking about how you're looking at the company from a growth model. So to answer to your question, that's really the pivot from being a manager to moving on to actually making it more of a career has a lot to do with thinking of it in an entrepreneurial sort of fashion. So what are you doing to bring people across the threshold? What are you doing in order to build business and decrease cost of goods, work with other vendors for better pricing? What is it that you are doing? bringing to the table so that if you are that AGM or you are that GM, that you're not just managing the business, you're trying to activate and, you know, be that person that brings people in. And that's really, that, that entrepreneurial spirit is the dividing line between somebody who's maintaining the business that comes in versus somebody who can actually run the business as a whole.
0: Yeah, it was interesting. the the very first uh, the first few management roles that I took, um, it was just I was a babysitter, right? Just in charge of the floor, overseeing. You know, even if I was a service director, I was still a you know in charge of service, upholding certain standards and all that. And it wasn't until I became an AGM uh, with with one of my good friends and mentors, who was the general manager at the time, and he just opened the books. He let me in on every you know every P and L meeting, every and he let me see everything. And then I really started to understand. Uh, number one, what a what a what a crappy industry we're in, and and just again those razor thin profit margins, and just seeing you know how it's on a on a just right on the edge every single month. Uh, but then I started to understand, and I felt like I got that education. I'll, I'll say four or five years too late. That had I realized, had I seen the bigger picture, um, that I understood what um, you know what inventory management meant, and you know maintaining labor cost, and you know understanding what it was, how it. Um, how it served the bottom line you know it's the relationship that it should have with top line revenue um and then you know you apply that to to liquor costing and and food costing and waste and and on and on and on really understanding that um so i, I guess you know a piece of that is is understanding that or, or learning that uh, as quickly as possible getting getting your eyes on some of that starting to think about that thinking like a restaurant owner yep
1: and I mean, and that's, and it's not gonna come to you for free. I, you're gonna have to come in on your day off. You're gonna have to come in on your times that you're making in order to work with somebody who's willing to train you. Because the people who are successful in any industry are the people that once they step into a position, they start to immediately train their replacement. Have to. From the very moment that you sit in the chair, start training who's taking that chair. Because you're never gonna move up, you're never gonna move on. If they always think, well, there's nobody else that can do what he does, so that's where he's going to sit. So in your, in your analogy, you, your story, you had somebody who took you and said, I'm going to show you these costing models. I'm going to show you why this crust utilization on the menu helps our food costs. I'm going to show you what a pro forma is and how to build it from ground and all of those things. But if you're a server or a bartender that's thinking about being a manager... You also need to be thinking about who are the people that ultimately you can go to and say, show me what a performer is. How do I build this? And just, and I mean, hound, ask, build that, that part if no one's taking the time and especially with managers being stretched thin, a lot of people don't have that ability to be like, Hey, let's been three hours. I'm going to walk you through how we create this. But if you find that person who's willing to show you, my God, Do So take those opportunities, because that's how you're going to absorb. And then again, you become that much more valuable. Because I would like to say that GMs are all perfectly vetted, but in the same way that sometimes people are throwing the keys to be a manager, sometimes people are throwing the keys to be a GM. And it's yep. really, and again, there's no real structure of, oh, you're now, you know, surprise, you're a GM. That's my running joke. If I ever write another book, it's go, surprise, now you're a GM. Because there's a whole host of other crap that you absolutely have to know that people just function on gut and fail miserably. And it's just, it is just massively challenging. So you have to seek those people out that, are willing to tell you and I know it's such dad advice but nobody's ever gonna give you anything in this world you know it's just it's just you you have to go take it you have to go dig it out and then you have to be willing to promote yourself and that's the one thing that all of us were trained as kids that you can't do as a child my mom told me to be quiet and be modest and be kind and don't be boastful and all of that is crap advice for advancement. Don't be kind. Be blunt. <laughs> Don't be quiet. Be loud. Don't be modest. Be be self confident.
0: Well, and there's a difference between you know there's there's blunt and you know blunt with generosity, right? I mean that's as long as it's coming from the right place. Yeah, and just there's there's blunt with
1: blunt with honesty.
0: Yeah, I mean you can be because on the other side you can be kind and actually you know being a you know providing a great disservice to the person you're uh working with uh, communicating with collaborating with uh, managing um if you're not giving them what they really need um to be able to succeed to be able to get to that next level to be able to understand yeah. their their shortcomings so um i don't know that's how i rationalize it as a type a you know person I, I
1: i think i i think that that's an okay thing i think blunt criticism is a value that people don't seem to truly grasp it's an entire chapter in the book about why you should be thankful for the person that's willing to be and it does Blunt doesn't need to be mean. It doesn't mean to be curt, but it needs to be straightforward. And everybody will say things like, you know, I really wish someone would just tell it to me straight. No, you don't. You couldn't handle it. You literally couldn't handle it because most people just like to be liked. And the minute I started getting away from being liked in my job, but being functional in my job is the minute that the people whose respect that I really wanted begin to say, oh, he values his position. He values what he does. I think I can learn from him instead of, oh, Ken's a nice guy. I'd have a beer with
0: yeah. him. Yeah. So yeah.
1: That, that sort of level of moving from kindness because I want to be liked to being blunt in a way that is honest, people have to learn how to embrace that because – the other side is where you work a job, and we've all had this happen. It's where you work a job, and it's do to do, and everything's grinding. They're like, hey, again, you're doing a great job. And then one day, they're like, hey, could you come to the office and bring all your things with you? And you're like, what are you <laughs> talking about? Oh, oh, wait, why? Why am I being fired? Oh, I thought yesterday, everyone told me I did a great job. Well, you, you, no one was willing to have the, the hard conversations. It's just easier to yeah, be nice. Yeah. And nice and nice sucks in management.
0: Yeah, and I think I think that's where a lot of managers and certainly I was guilty of this in my first management job. It's that like I wanted to be the cool manager. I wanted to be the one everybody <laughs> sure. liked, everyone came to and like and like not helpful. You know, not helpful at all. And uh and and I failed there because uh, because I wanted to be the cool manager rather than the good manager.
1: Yep. Or the the big one that is so tough, especially if you promote from within. So you're a server and then now you're is it's so hard not to feel like you have become some sort of norma ray for the entire staff. You're gonna stand up and now you're gonna fight the to you know, the oh the ownership and I'm gonna fight forever. No. No, because now all you're doing is now you're an elevated staff member and you're, you're still thinking like a staff member. You're not thinking like a manager. You can absolutely make everyone's world better by the processes and the support that you are going to give. You're going to instinctually be better at helping out on the floor because you have a connectivity to those people and how that, how that floor functions. But your whole role is not to become a louder alarm to try to fight the ills of the world. It's to try to make it better while also understanding how to build the business. And that's that balance is so hard. It's why major restaurant groups, if you get promoted, they'll take you up and they'll put you in an entirely different, you know, spot or another town because you don't know Charlie. Charlie wasn't your buddy you were drinking with last week. Now you know, nobody and you walk in with a clean slate. Yeah, it is easier. That is easier.
0: Yeah. You know, the other thing that's really interesting, and, and I, I'm very aware that I was lucky to be graced by, by two really great mentors who, you know, took, took me for about seven years and then Another seven years, you know, t- two guys who I was, you know, kind of worked under and, and taught me a great deal. And I'm, and I'm forever grateful uh, for those two relationships. Uh, but the thing is, is that like the generation before ours, uh, things were so much different. And and so there's that like that tutelage, which is kind of lost because the way things were done in the 70s, 80s and 90s, uh. It, People have joked around with me. Uh, It was like the Wild West, right? Like, like labor was super cheap. There was no IRS oversight. Everybody was making it was a different way uh, of doing things. And uh, I think we could all agree that things are better with with some reasonable oversight and and all of that. But but it's different. Different now, and it's also a more saturated marketplace, right? Like you can you can draw a direct line from uh, from when Food Network launches in the mid '90s to where we are now. That food culture has absolutely exploded. Oh, yeah. There used to be one restaurant on a corner, and now we got restaurants from corner to corner, right? Maybe a little nail salon in between, but you know, in a given block, you've got five, six restaurants, not even including the restaurants across the street or around the corner. I mean, there's just there's just every market is more saturated, and there are not only more options, but more good options. Options. Right.
1: And I think that that's, I mean, not to sound like Methuselah here, but absolutely I can remember a time to where Wolfgang Puck might be the only chef everyone knew. Like legitimately, there was that yeah that pre before it became gamification before everyone. And that's, that's my partner. That's Fabio Viviani. He's on two seasons of Top Chef. He started his entire empire in America because he was on a game show. That, w- that made stars out of chefs. And that has never, uh, I mean, in the 80s, I never would have thought that as being a thing. It was just just enough. But hey, there. in 20 years, there could be a thing called Top Busser. And you'd be like, is that a thing? Are people really? And you'd be like, yeah, nope, absolutely. <laughs> and if that's going to bring more light to another part of our industry, kick ass. I love it. Let's, yeah. Especially the busters, if anybody. But yeah, it. I, i surely didn't see that as being a thing i didn't see the the celebrity aspect of where it was going but that's also one of the reasons people get into the industry for the wrong reason because they find themselves romanticizing what it is to have it people who've been real successful in other industries are like oh, you know what i've always i've always wanted to have a brewery i'm gonna open one well good luck now you might as well d- dump your money into you know bad cryptocurrency and just watch it go down because it's kind of the same thing. It's just a longer thing (laughs) where you're just watching all your profits go down. And that's a, that's a real reason that people get into it is because they do make it look easy. It's the reason I, reason I started playing guitar is uh, old footage of Jimi Hendrix. And I would watch his play rhythm and lead at the exact same time on killing floor and go, I don't know how the hell he's doing that. His hand isn't moving or, or Eddie Van Halen. I'm like, all this is coming out and he's just standing there with what looks like his hand. And I thought, shit, I could do that. And I got a guitar right here that's gathering dust. And every time I pick it up, I go, why don't I ever sound like Eddie? Because there's a level of talent and there's a level of dedication. And if you're really good at what you do, you make it look really easy. And the best chefs I know make it look like a.
0: And if you want to get into it, you're not looking, I mean, it's that, it's that, uh, like the power of focus, right? Is that, um, when you go to buy a car, you're like, I think I'm gonna, i think I'm gonna buy a Jeep Grand Cherokee, and suddenly you're like, man, there are a lot of Jeep Grand Cherokees. But like, no, it's just on your mind. It's focus. You started looking it up. You started looking at prices. You're at the dealership, and yeah, and then you suddenly seem to see them everywhere on the road, on the, you know, parked in the lot, and all that. You're like, yeah, hey, these are really great. A lot of people must like this this car. So yeah, I think I'm making a good choice. It's the power of focus. You see what you want to see. You see what you're, you're, you're just open, uh, open to that. And I think the same thing is true with operators and and. Chefs, uh, they go, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna open a place. And he said, because because they did it and they're successful. And, and that place over there, they're successful. It's very easy to look at the success stories and to ignore the five restaurants in between one success story and the other uh success story, but those are about the odds. Two out of seven succeed, and the others will be gone uh, by the, the second anniversary.
1: Yep. And I mean, and all open for the most for the the best of intentions, the best of reasons. It, Somebody who's really a fantastic chef, and they, you know, everybody in the neighborhood raves about my food. I'm going to open a place. Great, you <laughs> know, that's not going to work out well for
0: you. So then, talk to me. So then, uh, because I, I feel this way, I feel this way as well. You say that's not going to work out for you. So then, what's the recipe for success? Right, uh, chef is great. Everybody loves my food, and and they say I should open my own place. Right, that's not enough of a reason, but that's not that's not a reason for their failure. Um, there's just other things that need to be there. So, what what are the things, in your opinion, that 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 need to be there to to elevate that story, uh, to ensure uh, to in- ensure longevity?
1: Probably the biggest thing that I've learned in the last few years, and as I get older and get more gray on my beard here, I realize that being nimble, there is a value in in speed. There's a value in in being way ahead of the curve, to, in a, in a manner that I truly had never really thought about. Once again, I oops. Once again, I talk about it in my book. I very simply just talk about it from people who like to go really fast and people who are introspective. And I think restaurant operators as a whole are more introspective and think about things from a standpoint. Whereas owners and marketers are people that kind of push the ball really fast. And you have to figure out where that counterbalance is. But marketing is the thing that I think that I've probably been the most changed. My biggest philosophy on because it used to be to where you would create a barbecue concept and then this would be what you would do. And you'd roll it out, you'd figure out what it is, you put it out to the public, and then you listen to the public. They tell you, Oh, you might want to change your sauce or you might want to bring wet naps or whatever. And then you start making adjustments by listening to them. And then you think, well, I'm not getting enough traction. I'm bringing more marketing in. I'm focusing on social media. I'm going to push the best restaurant groups that I know of have marketing people that start from ground one one of the first restaurant groups i worked here in chicago here was called dynamic in chicago An amazing group it's where i actually met fabio and when i walked in for their fine dining restaurant it was a huge group of people and then a whole bunch of like marketing people and they were like 23 years old and i'm sitting there way over 23 and they're talking about well what should you call it what should we call this place what do you think we should do what do you think that we should be? it was at that level and the marketers were there and the social media was there and they were in the conversation and my first instinct was why are they in this room what what we're gonna figure it out we're gonna sit down chef's gonna write it out we're gonna create it and then you can figure it out but they Being able to understand, have a value buying into what it was also started the conversation six to nine months before the place was ever open, had huge buy-in so that by the time the doors opened, everyone was completely excited about it. I mean, it was the fourth concept that they had and we opened up the doors on our, our VIP and we had a thousand people. Now- that is a thousand people in a place that is not rated for a thousand people. I'll just tell you that. It was wall to wall. And every opening since has been that because they build that conversation outside the four walls way, way in advance in a way that when you add them at the end, they're just playing catch up.
0: This is music to my ears because this is so much what I do. I always say, like, you know, it, it, they're all marketing problems, uh, but you can't solve them with marketing. Uh, at least not in restaurants. You have to solve them with operations. And that's the um, that that's the tie-in. That's the relationship there. Um, but you gotta figure out uh, what drives me crazy um, as a marketer, I primarily been a marketing uh, consultant uh, over the last several years, uh, leveraging all of my operational experience. Uh, but what drives me crazy is they, you know, down the room, uh all, all the all the people are, are coming up with a concept and building it all and then somebody walks down the the folder to me down the hall to marketing and they say here you go we figured it all out go sell it and it's like nope you missed it you missed it it's got to be baked into the pie i can't just take whatever you want and go sell it I, i'm I mean, maybe if you've got a celebrity chef if you've got something really amazing uh, in you know that, that no one's ever seen but then you're getting into you know a place where it's just a novelty the marketing has to be baked into it, right? What's gonna What's gonna attract people to this? What's gonna bring them back? What's gonna make them want to talk about it? I, I can't just tell people to talk about it later, or, or if I do tell them, they're not gonna listen to me. What you really have to do is create something that is worth talking about. Marketing has to be um, has to be at the table. In fact, what you've described, I'm going through right now with a client of mine. We're eight months out from the opening of this property, and uh, and I am. At the table, um, having really uh, important conversations with the chef, with the head of programming. It's a it's a, a theater and a restaurant all under one uh, all under one roof, and we're talking about how the programming will affect um, the operations. Right, being able to flip the room, being able to provide a certain experience. We're talking about show times uh, because we're looking at revenue models. Says, so listen, if you do a show at seven and ten thirty. Then by the time the 10:30 shows out, you got to kick them out because the doors close at 11 uh, at 1 a.m. Uh, because of our liquor license. But if you push everything earlier, they got people got more time to party in this room in the theater later. And you know we're having big conversations where I'm saying, hey, listen, I can sell this table. I, ca- I can market this to a group that will want to purchase a table to the show, a VIP table for you name the price. But what's going to make it easy to do is if I say you come here, you see the show and you stay and party for two hours afterwards, think of it like it all turns over into a club. How are we going to activate the space? I said, you know, this is going to be an extra five grand, 10 grand, 15 grand a night in revenue just on those two hours afterwards if we do this right. And so we're having real. I mean, it's it's literally all woven in. So we've got, you know, guest services and the brand strategist and the chef and the general manager and the two owners and myself, the who's handling all the marketing and and we're all part of a conversation, which is very cool and very rare.
1: But that's great. And I mean, which means you've adopted the success model, which is you'll take a good idea from anywhere. And same same exact scenario, when you have a chef has been doing it for 20 years and the 25-year-old marketing coordinator comes over and says, I think we should make uh, soft serve ice creams, that are chocolate, and we're going to call it the churd because it looks like a turd, and we're going to put lies on it. It's going to be great because they they do something similar in, in uh, New York, and we're going to do this. This is how we're going to do it. And you watch chefs go through this process of, you, you're, I've been doing this for 20 years. Why are you telling me what to do? But the reality is, who's your target market? It's that person who's coming up with this idea. So they're going to need to drive that conversation. Uh, a, uh, a group that I did a little work with is called Crumble Cookie. They, they you know, they have franchise, They did a opening here in Schaumburg, Illinois. The place is incredible. Um, if you've not heard of the concept, they make six fresh cookies each week. They rotate them. They put them on TikTok. TikTok is their best friend. And it's obsessive. They've moved from one location in 2017 to like 180 or something now. The lines out the door from 815 on. Lines out the door. And everybody in that line is either under 15 or 40-year-old housewives because that's who's watching TikTok. But it works so perfectly because every single person who goes in then does their reel and then posts it up on TikTok and then marketing begins marketing. And now you're getting the real marketing where it's organic because it's actually from the consumer. And it just builds and builds. And then that two hour line gets to be a three hour line. And all you think is, how in the world is this happening? It's driving the marketing conversation long before the doors open. But I, yeah, when I in the 90s and 2000s, I never did that. I always it the other it's way.
0: really something, it's funny. So then this idea of this focus, right? It, for me is that I started getting into marketing, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, really started, I became obsessed with it. And I started then applying the lessons to restaurants because I realized restaurants don't apply these lessons. Restaurants do, don't do do marketing. They don't think about, about marketing. They just, um, they're really good at, you know, hopefully they're really good at operations, you know, efficiency, steps of service, all of that. But, um, but the marketing doesn't exist. And uh, that's a, a large part of what I've tried to do. That's this, this podcast, is largely about that. Um, and for me, it all comes down to solving problems, right? If you're not solving a problem, there's no reason for your product to exist. It's got to solve a problem. Now, it could just be, I want to entertain people. And if people are entertained, they'll, they'll come by your thing. But you've got to know, whose problem you're solving is you got to, you got to define that who, you know, understanding who your target market is understanding who has a problem that needs solving. How am I uniquely qualified to solve that problem for them? And then that's your product. That's the experience you're crafting. And you go deliver that to not have that conversation before you go to all the effort of raising money and developing a menu and hiring and building out and, and opening your doors to not know, whose problem you're solving that that what what solution you're providing is mind blowing to me that people wouldn't wouldn't do all that beforehand.
1: It's the difference between putting on body armor or a tourniquet. I mean, you're preparing (laughs) way in advance for the eventuality of taking some blows versus I'm probably gonna lose a leg, but I'm gonna need to tie this one off and that from a marketing standpoint is what you see most of all is people saying, oh, we need sales, go push this night. We want to have all you can eat buffet, whatever crap. Ugh. You're That's already, promotion. You're, you're already, it's promotion and you're already way behind the curve because you're not, you're not building buzz. You're just not so it's, creating. It's yep.
0: so funny because you say you wrote this book uh, because you found yourself having the same conversations over and over and over again. And That's, I largely started this podcast because I was having the same conversations over and over and over again. And I was having these conversations about promotion versus marketing. You know, and say, oh, we just, you know, you know, go tell people about this thing. It's like, who? We don't have a market yet. We don't know who, what, what the product is and, and what problem it's solving. We should have rever- and I mean, it's reverse engineering, but that's how the best businesses work, right? Steve Jobs said in 2004, three, when he started developing the iPhone, he said, I, I can see a future where I think everyone's going to need a computer in their pocket. I just don't think they're going to carry two things in their pocket, the phone and the computer. So he put them together. He didn't want to make a phone. He wanted a computer in everybody's pocket. He just he realized that people already had something in their pocket. So he said, the only way I'm going to get people uh, to see the value of this is that if they don't to, to remove that friction there. Right. And he solved that. I mean, he was, you know, he, he was uh, way ahead of his time in seeing how connected the world was going to be. But it's the same lesson for our industry, right? You've got to Mm -hmm. look and see what do people need? What do I think people are going to need, right? The same thing is true here coming out of the pandemic, right? Habits, daily routines are changing in profound ways. Uh, You know, we talk about the staffing. We started this whole conversation talking about staffing. Most of the work that I'm doing right now Is working with uh, restaurants and restaurant groups uh, to try to bring um, uh, technology to the forefront, right? Like table ordering and all of that. Like I think it is the future. I don't think it's the future for every concept. I think there's still a place for waiters and bartenders. I just don't think uh, that we're gonna that every restaurant needs them in the same way that we've been using them, right? This. Instead of taking this one size fits all approach, um, which is which is ludicrous that for two hundred years we've basically run all restaurants the same, right? Luigi's pizza shop is the same <laughs> as, you know, the restaurant, you know, Applebee's up here is the same as the French laundry, but they are not all the same. They they require wildly different experiences. And yeah, when I go to Alinea, I want the team there. I, I want that 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 thing. That's what I'm paying for. But you know, when I'm going to I don't know. You, you fill in the blank. I don't know that I need a server. If I'm just going to get a burger and a burger and a beer, I, I I don't I don't know that I need a server. I can do that on my phone. It's right in my pocket, my pocket computer. I can very easily just order it, send it in, and somebody comes over and says, "Hey, you ordered a burger, medium rare, and a you know a Yingling." Yep, that's mine. Thank you very much.
1: Yep, and I think that you're you're tapping onto something that has been rolling out. It's and. To me, the break point is somewhere around gastropub, to places that are like beer gardens and have a good menu, but they're not in an elevated, I I would rather, 100% rather, hit it on my phone. I'd definitely rather tab out on my phone. And that was happening way before all of this with a bunch of software to where you go into a bar, you start it on your phone, they order it, it pops up what you're ordering. And then when you're ready to tab out, you don't have to stand in this huge queue and push through to tab out because that's always the worst part. Is the bartender does not give a shit at that point because they've already made all your drinks and now they just have to run your credit card and it's a whole and entire thing. They, you just did it on your phone and that was getting traction and that was good. The replacement of a, of the actual wait staff, definitely hit challenges there pre-pandemic simply because of. Even at the very most casual places, people felt, oh, well, this is going to affect tipping. People are going to now tip less because they feel that there's not somebody invested. Which, if you can save that much more money and labor and pay that team that much more in an actual livable wage, then great. Because I would much rather turn my servers into runners of positivity and follow up with actual genuine, you know to table touching and to plant seeds and to really engage with people and then take my runners and busters and train them on the line and develop that there's, there are so much more opportunities and it also breaks down this huge tip out structure, which is always a nightmare in every single restaurant.
0: Yep. Yep. Yeah, Or you utilize the servers as like little mini managers and then we don't need, you know, all this weight at the top. I mean, so many restaurants, especially as you get into fine dining, are so top heavy with a GM and an AGM and a service director and a wine director and a mixologist and a maitre d and, you know, and then you get into the back of the house, right? You got an executive chef, a CDC, an executive sous, three mm-hmm. sous, a pastry, a pastry sous. It's like if you, just, if you just cut that down and utilize people, I mean, here's my argument, right, is that. Why? Why can't we use people to do the things that only people can do? You know, I'm a waiter. spends half their night copying down an order and then going to the corner and tapping in the order. It's wildly inefficient. and It's a poor use of somebody's real skill set. I would rather have, instead of twelve servers, have four. Have them be little mini managers in their station. And if they're not stuck at the table or stuck in the corner or huddled over Aloha, they can actually be. You know. Tapping in, you know, they can actually be there guiding people through the through the um, through the journey. They can be there to upsell, to pour off that bottle of wine, to guide them through the experience, and so we can utilize them, I think, more efficiently. And I think the reason it hasn't taken off, and this is what I'm banking on, this is what I'm working very hard on, is that I think the reason it hasn't taken off is because people have just removed the people, and you also remove both the service and the hospitality. And I think there's a way of re allocating that human capital and uh, and making it actually more hospitable, making it a better guest experience in in every possible way. I think it's possible.
1: All right. I'm going to play devil's advocate with you on this one, because I think that you mentioned fine dining. I think that's probably the hardest one to remove all of those by far.
0: Agreed. Agreed.
1: But that being said, there is an aspect of the approach to the table that is lost from just even from a profitability standpoint, but also from a like guest interaction in a positive way, like to where there are genuine recommendations. And I know that it's a cliche of somebody walking over and spouting out the, you have to have the seafood of the night when they don't like seafood. And it's just somebody in the back told them that they have to push it, which is why one of the big things that all our restaurants that I'm associated with it's, we taste the entire menu You only talk about what you like. My barbecue restaurant had two vegetarians, and they always talked about the vegetarian chili because they weren't allowed to talk about the ribs because they don't eat them, so don't lie. Everything being very genuine. But if you actually get somebody who suggests something because they truly, truly think it's the best thing on the menu, then people will take to that if they have the ability to opt in or opt out on a suggestion. So we always build in the, would you like to hear about? And if they say yes, then you kick in. If you're, yep. you're tablet-driven to where they're starting at their order, they might or might not pivot to put the Pellegrino or the Aquapana instead of the, the tap. The Adding on the split p- cacio e pepe at top of their salads and their entrees, they might not be thinking of. That to me is where it gets tricky.
0: So can I completely agree with you? And and that's really the, that's really the approach. So how can you create the efficiency, the ease of use of table ordering and how do you keep that? So I don't want to lose that. That's what I want to keep the first approach, Mm -hmm. but the first approach just changes. Hey, how are you doing? Welcome. Have you been here recently? No. Great. We've recently changed it. You actually are going to order everything on here. I'm here to guide you through the menu. Here are your menus, because I don't believe we should do away with menus. I just want people to be responsible for putting for actually putting the order in. I don't need to waste somebody who's a, a great salesman. I don't need to waste the, their time on paperwork, right? A really great salesman in anything writes up the order, passes that order off, you know, to somebody else who who writes it up who who, who uh, you know, makes it happen. So I don't want them stuck at the computer. I don't want them stuck just copying stuff down. So if we can maintain that where they say, I'm here to guide you through, let me talk to you about the menu, let me share some of my favorites, you know, something that's not on the menu, but you can absolutely do. The cacio pepe is so good. If you split it, it's a perfect mid-course. It's not going to overwhelm your main course. Absolutely. But you're freeing the people up. I think there's a way to free the people up to be able to do more of that.
1: See, I... I think it's interesting and I like it. I like because it's just taking out a few of the points and especially from a drink standpoint, that's always my biggest one. If I could get it on my phone and get another, you know, glass of Basil Hayden coming over and I, I'm fine with that. That I am just yep. that's So I'm a huge proponent. Uh, what I think is an interesting thing is that part of yours, you're going to still give them a real menu, which yeah. I 100% love a real menu. But during all of the pandemic, we all had to use QR codes, right? And part of having to use QR codes meant that uh, you had to look at the menu on your phone. But it also meant that whenever I had to make changes on the menu, all I had to do is go to my computer, go boop, boop, boop. And then the QR code updates and it still goes to the same thing. And I can adjust that menu daily. And I don't have to reprint anything. I think if yep. I think that the people who probably lost out a lot in the restaurant industry were the people who were to print that print menus because that just didn't happen, and that I like. Now, do I think it's a better experience? No, hand menus will always be better than a QR code, a hundred percent. But if you already have people that are tech savvy enough to where they're going to order on their phone, why still have? paper menus
0: sure uh, my point being is that I, I don't think it has to be either or i don't think you got to throw the baby out with the bathwater. and just because you want to keep the paper menus i think there's a way of saying fine then keep it then keep the paper menus i think there's i think there's value to that but i think there's that doesn't negate this other way of doing things it's funny because one of the brands i'm working with is about to open up this huge huge brew pub it's like like 700 seats. I mean, huge. And they basically came to me and said, "We can't have that many waiters. We 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 literally physically can't can't hire that many people's and and the churn that we're going to have. So we need to make this thing work. So we are going to make it work. Mm-hmm. And we're rolling it out slowly in some of the other properties in anticipation for that. But we are going to open with not. I mean, you can imagine 700 seats. What's that? 30, 35 servers a night. Easily. Yes, we're going to roll out with eight or ten. And they're going to act like little mini managers and they're going to do exactly what we're talking about. I, I think this is the future, not for every place, like you said.
1: I, have, I, I am very interested for the follow-up uh, podcast on this because if you have 700 seats and you have 10, you have 70 guests per server. And if, yep, you can pull, we're gonna... if you can pull that off and then hopefully, dream a little dream, there's some sort of profit-sharing world or, or pooling to where… That plays in for front of the house and back of the house because simply that's the other aspect of breaking down the yeah. wall is if you have seven servers and seven hundred seats, uh, even if they tip 10%, they're gonna go home with bank. And yep. the first time that they walk through the pass and they're like, I made five hundred dollars, that's just gonna ruin everything. So you're gonna have to figure out a generous tip out or wage or split or something. But I'm interested to see how that will work out. Cause you're right. Technology is, is exactly how things are going. We saw that with virtual kitchens. We're seeing that with replacement of, you know, much needed help in the, the labor standpoint. So Chip, I'm, I'm dying to, and I might even have to get on a plane. If you get this going, I I will come see it. Absolutely. I
0: Listen, listen, I look, I look forward to it. Um, I'm very aware of your time. So I don't want to keep you much longer, but uh, I, I just want to start rounding this up. So, I love the idea of this book. I said, I haven't read it yet. I am uh, it's ordered. It is coming. Uh, it arrives tomorrow. i'm I'm leaving for a week and I'm gonna read it uh, over the weekend on the flight. I'm gonna have a good time doing it. I'm looking forward to it. I've loved this conversation. Tell me, what are, because you do so much of your consulting work, um, you know, all over the country. I want you to give me the the quick hits. What are the three biggest mistakes do you think people are making uh, that are cutting into their uh, profitability and then what are the three biggest things people could do right away um t- to help turn things around and, and maybe they go together and maybe they don't
1: they kind of do um first one i'm always surprised by is not having a true understanding of what they sell and having it truly costed out and having it accurate and having it updated and i don't know how you can do that without having an inventory system i use marketman i used uh, bevspot i use several Um, all with the same understanding of you cannot manage your costs if you do not have your recipes costed out and if your recipes are not updated weekly or daily or in the moment when that comes off the truck, so you actually have an understanding of that dish. And the number of places that I know that do that is astounding. In that same vein, they're unwilling to pit vendor against vendor Or look at their ability to say, well, here's my three. I'm buying Roma tomatoes. Where's my greatest place? I've worked at places to where they have jobbers. And it's like, well, that's Steve. Steve's been working out 10 years. He just goes down to the market and picks that up. And I'm like, well, that's great. But Steve can write on a piece of paper that those Roma tomatoes cost him $80. You're just going to pay it. You don't have a choice. You're boxing yourself in. Uh, And then third, same thing with the vendors. I, I think that you absolutely know this, but a lot of people get blind to the fact of, like, linen suppliers. Linen suppliers will charge you based on your inventory, not on what you use. So whatever, if you have 2,000 napkins that are coming, but you only use 800, guess what? You're getting charged for 2,000, not on your usage. So you have to, you have to audit them every 90 days. Hey, where am I in on that? So that you can adjust your PARs up and down accordingly. Same with uh, how many times that you're going to put stuff in the dumpsters and whether they need to be increased or decreased. Or your credit card fees. Has that started going up? So now you're paying 2.5 instead of 2.2 because you forgot that interchange rate has a balloon on it. after. Eh. And then taking the opportunity to say, well, I'm going to talk to uh, ALSCO. Instead of this other company, I'm going to go down and I'm going to go bid with Chase Payment Tech to see if I can get a better rate than what I'm getting currently. Those aspects are the just small managing your costs that people don't take the opportunity to because they just figure, oh, you know what? I'm sure that we're doing well on the dumpsters. Well, there's a very good possibility you could probably cut that down and save yourself a couple hundred bucks by literally just doing it once less time. that's Those are the little things that I come in. And as a consultant, and, and I know you know this, it's a pejorative in our industry. Being a consultant, everybody has a horror story about a consultant that came in and pointed at stuff and then said, this is wrong. and took a check and left and did nothing that they like literally did nothing. So when I go in, I give them an entire list of, this is what you should look for. This is what you should do. And I literally lay it out and go, "Here, do it." If you have the bandwidth to pit your 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 different vendors, look at different suppliers, look at your cost of goods, put in an inventory system, if you have those people to do it, God love you. And I'm always around for a phone call to help you out. But if you don't have that bandwidth, that's when you utilize our services. But I am no good to anybody as a consultant. If I am profit first, I am what supports the restaurant first. I will tell you exactly how I would do it if it it were mine. And then only in, if you are strapped and can't do it, do I actually go ahead and set it up to where I come in and help.
0: I love it. I love it. What's the number one, um, tip tactic thing to drive more revenue? Uh, say I, I want to drive more revenue next week than I did this week. What's the, what's the one thing you'd, uh, you'd put into practice.
1: Uh, making sure that the entire staff has tasted every single thing. I, again, a huge blow, mind blowing the number of places I'll go into and I'll ask the staff, Hey, what's your favorite thing on the menu? And say, I don't know, I've had like three things. And I'll say, What why why have you not had everything in the menu? And the response is well, the managers, you know, we're watching costs. Our our comp line is very important, or you know. <laughs> and all I'm thinking of is great. You have now created order takers. That's all you've done. You've just, you've got people who are going to walk over. They're not going to obsessively talk about, Oh my God, I love this. Um, by the way, is cursing okay on this podcast?
0: Yeah, totally fine.
1: Okay. Quick story. My favorite suggestion of all times was when I was at a barbecue restaurant in Rochester, New York called, um, it's dinosaur. They got three. You, you know Dinosaur. Um, I went in, sat down by myself, middle of lunch, and the bartender, she was running back and forth, and she was just hurried. She takes the menu. She puts it down in front of me, and she says, hi, um, here's the menu. I'll be right back to get you ta- taken care of. By the way, try the beer and cheddar soup. It's like fucking crack, and then walked away. And I immediately was like, <laughs> yes, because – There's no manager that's in pre-shift going, all right, we got 83 covers today. Uh, Look like we got seven servers. Uh, Talk about the beer, chair, soup, call it fucking crack. No one did that. She tasted (laughs) it at some point in the morning while she was setting it up. Probably somebody in the line was like, taste it. And she's like, oh my God. And at that point, she made the determination, this is the best thing we have. And it is a sin if I don't tell everybody that I see about this, because to me, this is the best. And I'll be damned. I ordered it. And because she was so excited about it, I loved it. And that to me, when you get people that are that bought into what you do and they love it, then they're going to be your biggest fans at your table. And that's going to build. Yeah. So if you're a restaurant tour that doesn't always expose your staff to everything that you have, you've created
0: order takers. I love it. I love it. You know, people come out to have a good time. They They want to be wowed and, um, they don't want, I mean, the great majority of people don't want to be difficult. They don't want to come here and just uh, make our, make our lives uh, more difficult. They, they do. They just want to have a good time. So uh, they, they're already, you know, they're already past the 50 yard line. It shouldn't take much to, to keep them coming down towards the end zone. Um, Ken, I really appreciate your time today. Where can people go to learn more about you, your book, um, uh, Corgan Hospitality? Uh, tell them where they need what they need to know.
1: Yeah, Corgan Hospitality. That's K O R G E N. Uh, that's my wife's name is Morgan, and I'm Ken. So you see how that adorably came together. And um, oh. the book is on Amazon. If you are uh, if you like independent uh, bookstores, bookshop is carrying it. Uh, it's available internationally. There is an audio book. Uh, it's doing pretty well. Um, if you want to hear this voice for five and a half hours, but Fabio's on it as well, which is nice. But at mentioned at the top of the podcast, you can download a e-version for 99 cents on uh, Amazon. It's literally, and if you e- if you could go onto my website and text me or email me and ask me for a free version, I'll give it to you. It's more important for me right now. Well, Forever to get the information out than it is to focus on profit because it's the only thing that I can do that makes me feel like I'm helping the industry.
0: I love it. It's great. This is the time to help the industry. I think we can really come into a renaissance here. There's a lot of really great stuff ahead of us, but we we can't lose sight of uh, of all the, the fundamentals, right? The blocking and tackling of this. Um, Ken, thank you so much. Absolutely. Any, uh, any final words of wisdom you want to leave the listeners with?
1: Uh, you know what? Honestly, I think... Just be mindful and understanding of that we are in a rebuilding phase as an industry and that the onus is on us as managers and owners to change the conversation to where we create an environment to where people want. To work with us and it's not about blaming them for not wanting to be
0: there yeah i think that's a really great place to end uh i so appreciate you taking out the time uh to sit and chat with me um uh, thank you so much for writing this book thank you for sharing all your wisdom with us really appreciate it
1: thank you so much jip i really appreciate your time
0: my pleasure So there you have it, this encore presentation of my interview with Ken McGarry. Again, the book is The Surprise Restaurant Manager. You can get it on Amazon or anywhere you wish to. And go check out his website, uh, Corgan Hospitality. All those links are in the show notes. One final reminder, we've got the P3 Marketing Summit coming up in January, 2024. Uh, The early bird, the premier access early bird tickets, they are $2.97 a piece. That offer disappears uh, at the end of October. So on October 31st at 11.59, Nine, that's the last time you can get these tickets uh, for the, the low rate it goes up in November it goes up again in December we've sold more than half the tickets we're capping the event at just 100 people I promise you, you want to be there you want to be there in this room you're going to learn a ton again, big thanks to Ken for being here uh, for, for letting me share his story Thank you to all of you for being here, and go check it out. Consider joining us at the P3 Mastermind Summit. Uh, Those links are in the show notes. You can go and get your tickets today. Thank you very much. Go get those links, and I will see you later.